As you know, we're in the middle of this series on the, from the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And today, verses 10 to 12, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Tense moments filled the atmosphere during the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 9. No response came from his adversaries, the Pharisees, after Jesus corrected and convicted them about their erroneous views on marriage and divorce. Their attempts to trap Jesus failed spectacularly. And we come away from the confrontation with this conclusion. God created marriage, man created divorce. God created male and female in his image for each other for a lifetime of covenant commitment and loyal love in marriage, faithfully reflecting the relationship between Christ and his church. And as we have already acknowledged, this means that marriage involves four things. One, a new pledge. Remember, we looked at this the other Sunday. Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2. A man will leave his father and mother. A new pledge. Second, a new priority. That not only will a man leave his father and mother, but he will be united to his wife. A new priority. And then third, a new personhood. That the two will become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then fourth and finally, a new purity. For the Bible tells us there in Genesis 2.25 that the man and his wife had no shame. They were perfectly transparent. There was no shame in the relationship of our first parents, Adam and Eve, before they sinned according to Genesis 2.25. And this is why Jesus declares in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, therefore, because this is the conclusion that Jesus comes to on the basis of Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now listen, let me hurriedly remind us this morning that the message, the pastor, and the message that God has given the pastor in this series is not intended to beat up on anyone or to make anybody feel bad if you are in a difficult marriage, if you are divorced, or if you are separated. Uh, things are not working out or things didn't work out or whatever the case is, it, it does not matter to me. 
What we all need to know, first of all, is that God loves us no matter the status and the situation. He loves you. And that everything that has happened in your life matters to him. You know, the scripture says, cast your cares, your burdens upon the Lord because he cares for you. Listen, we're saying a whole lot more, and the scripture's saying a whole lot more than just four words, he cares for you. Those four words right there are a library of truth about how God loves us and cares for us. Okay, so I just need to say that parenthetically as we move on. Now the scene shifts from the public setting here in verses 10, to 10 11, and 12 of Mark chapter 10. The scene shifts from what was the public setting to a private setting in someone's home where Jesus and his disciples have an opportunity to talk more about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and family a little bit. We are not told whose home this is, but obviously it was a place where they were lodging while they were on their way ultimately to Jerusalem. There were several instances, by the way, of Jesus uh, teaching in a private home and answering the disciples' questions about a parable or about something he said in a speech or a sermon that he used in public. So this isn't the first time this happened, but it's very important for us to make note of it whenever it happens, you see. Here Jesus is uh, taking the opportunity to disciple the disciples in private, in a home, in a smaller setting, out of public view. So another example of this would be Mark chapter 7, verse 17, which records Jesus returning to a private home and answering the disciples' questions about a parable he had used in public. In Mark chapter 9, verse 28, Jesus instructed the disciples in a private home on why they had failed to cure a demon-possessed boy. Remember, we were there in both of those instances. We walked through those episodes together, saints. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, after returning home to Capernaum, Jesus questioned his disciples about their disputes during the journey. Remember, they were arguing amongst themselves, but they didn't want Jesus to know what they were, what they were jostling about. Jesus asked them, what were you all struggling with? See, that's, these are aspects of Jesus' methods of discipleship. This was a normal discipling practice of Jesus. In fact, Mark chapter 4, verses 33 and 34 says that Jesus would customarily speak using parables in public. But in private, he would explain everything to his disciples. It says this, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, to the public, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Mark chapter 4, 33 and 34. 
So Jesus spent much time personally discipling these disciples in private. He explained scripture to them. He answered questions. He opened their minds in order to deepen their understanding of the things of God. And he has to help them get the right biblical understanding of marriage, divorce, remarriage, and family because it is such an important issue in everybody's life. It was such an important issue in everybody's life then, and it is such an important issue nonetheless today in everybody's life. By the way, whether you're married or not, it's, important. it's an important subject to everyone. Now in Mark chapter 10, verses 10 to 12, the scripture tells us, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about all of this that had gone on, verses 1 to 9. And he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Wow. This is a significant statement by the Lord. And you know something? Let me just tell you, in my own journey with the Lord, I really struggled to understand this when I was a younger believer, not only younger in age, but younger in the faith. I really struggled to get my head around this. It was just difficult for me to, what? You know, to try and understand this, let alone trying to explain it to other people. Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been preaching since I was 18 years old. This was a challenge for a very long time. And I had questions. And you know, um, whenever you have questions about scripture, the first and best thing to do is to pray and ask God to help you understand. And God will always answer yes to that prayer if you are willing to not only understand, but obey the understanding that God gives us from his word. It's like what James says in the, uh, James chapter 1. You know, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives it generously without finding fault, meaning without finding fault with you for admitting that you don't understand or that you don't know what to do with this or about this scripture or this situation for that matter. God doesn't, God doesn't criticize us for admitting when we don't know what to do. God is pleased with us for having the humility to admit when we don't know what to do or when we don't understand something. So if you ask God to give you understanding and you do it with the intention of obeying his word, God will answer yes to that prayer. And how he answers it could be any number of ways. You know, it could be through a sermon that you hear. It could be in an, in an informal conversation with another Christian believer, or it could be something that you read somewhere. But God will give you understanding if you ask 
if you are assuming you are willing to obey the word of God. So this is a significant statement by the Lord. And I'm thankful that God gave me the grace uh, to grow in my understanding of what Jesus was actually saying here. Because this is one of those, as I mentioned a few Sundays ago, you know, this is what is referred to as one of the hard sayings of Jesus in the Bible. These sayings that to us, at least, are difficult uh, to understand or to, to grasp, uh, and sometimes a struggle for us to accept, to be honest, you know, just come to terms with. Well, this is one of those. <laughs> and not only for us, they were struggling with it too, the disciples and their generation. Okay, so let's go back momentarily and remember the context of this statement by rereading Matthew 10, 2 through 9. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Y'all remember what we said about that? It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Returning to our text right here now in verses 10 to 12, you see. Here we go. So when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. The former wife, the first wife. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. The disciples were stunned by what Jesus had already said to his adversaries in the previous verses. They had never heard marriage explained this way before. There is no doubt they were straining their minds to understand the significance of Jesus' teaching on marriage. And they had questions. And it's okay to have questions. Just because you have questions, it doesn't mean you're questioning God. It just means you need a better understanding. Mark's gospel does not tell us any of the questions the disciples posed to Jesus in private, but judging from Jesus' answer, it appears they asked about every aspect of what he had said to the Pharisees. This was an important discipling moment for Jesus to help his followers understand the word of God at a deeper and more meaningful level. He takes the time to explain deep truths to them in more detail. You know how we are in today's church very often. You know, 
perhaps if you've been in church in a little time, perhaps you've heard, you know, the preacher say, okay, uh, on your own time, get to that and go read it, <laughs> you know. Or we'll come back to that later because that will take up, you know, a whole lot more time than we have now. And, of course, you know, it's usually the case that we never get back to it, you know. Well, Jesus took the time to explain deep truths to them in more detail. This is how Christian disciples grow in our faith and understanding. This is how we develop towards spiritual maturity in Christ. This is what every Christian believer, <clears throat> excuse me, should desire for him or herself and other believers in the church. This is how we should help disciple one another in the church by taking the time for someone who's been given maturity and understanding and wisdom in the word to explain the deep truths. I can remember <clears throat> that some of the most impactful moments in my journey with the Lord happened during informal conversations with more mature believers that improved my understanding. As a matter of fact, that's what happened to me with this issue, with this verse, with what Jesus is saying here. I remember that I was in the middle of, I was sitting in a conversation with several others, uh, several of whom were more, at least as mature, if not more mature than I. And someone talked about this and explained it in a way that opened my understanding. It clicked. It turned a light bulb on. Ah, that's what is happening here. This is what Jesus is saying. I get it now. You see, there's no substitute for personal discipling relationships in the local church. Everything Jesus did became an opportunity for personal discipleship for each one of his disciples. Now, if you're a Christian, here's the question. Who are you helping? Who have you helped to personally disciple in your local church? Who do you regularly call to encourage in their walk with the Lord? Hey, I didn't want nothing. I just wanted to just, I didn't want anything. I just want to check on you, see how you're doing. I haven't seen you, you know, in worship in a Sunday or two or three or four. How you doing? What's going on? I'm just checking on you. Nothing, nothing, nothing significant. What can I pray for? What's going on? Can I help? Can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Hey, you know what? I'm just calling because I was reading something in the Word of God and it just opened my understanding to something and I wanted to share it with you. All of those are moments of personal discipling and discipleship that make a difference and impact people's lives because you never know if God puts somebody on your heart, for example, to call and to speak with and to share something with them that enlightened you from God's Word or some conversation about the things of God based upon God's word, you may be answering a need or a prayer that they have that you had no idea 
And that strengthens their faith in addition to yours. With whom do you regularly read the Bible and pray? If, you have, if, you, if you're the kind of, of a believer that you struggle to um, pick up the Bible and read it on your own, one way that you can help yourself is get a partner, get a reading partner. All right, you know, nobody has to nobody has to preach a sermon. Nobody has to explain. You know, listen. Your partner may not know any more than you do, and y'all may not be. You may read things you don't understand and may not be able to elucidate elucidate each other. But that's okay. Reading the Word of God. First of all, you've got to read it to know what's there in the first place. You know, you. You're not, going to have, you're not going to have trouble understanding something you don't even know exists. You've got to read it. It's important just to read the Word of God, even, even when you don't understand everything you're reading. Keep reading it. Keep reading it. Why? Because it is the Word of God. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and goes to the deepest depths of the human heart and soul, you see. The Word of God has impact upon your soul and your mind as you read it, after you read it, even if you don't understand it at the time. You will understand it if you ask God because he will see to it that you come to an understanding. Oh, it may take time, but that's okay. That's okay. Discipleship doesn't happen in a microwave. You know, we live, in a, we live in a microwave world where, you know, we want things to happen now, fast, or even yesterday. But discipleship doesn't happen that way. You don't grow overnight. You grow over time. You know, we would be very concerned about a baby who by the time he or she was two years old, grew to be six feet tall. You would say that's impossible. Well, that's actually the point. No one shoots up overnight. People only grow normally and naturally over time. It is true also spiritually. We grow over time. And with more time in informing ourselves of what's in the word of God, what's there, we grow. What young person or young believer are you seeking to help grow? Just a question, please don't answer aloud. Just a question that God has for you, wherever you are, at whatever level of maturity you are. Okay, so in verse 11, Jesus answers their questions with one of the most important truths about divorce. Says divorce was the issue with the Pharisees that the Pharisees brought before Jesus in an attempt to entrap him, which, as we already said, failed spectacularly. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. This is about as straightforward as possible. Even if, even if it's hard to hear and difficult to understand, this is about as straightforward as possible. Let us remember, God created marriage. Man created divorce. 
Let us also remember that while the original question was about divorce, Jesus also included the issue of remarriage. In fact, this is the first mention of remarriage in his discussion with the Pharisees when he was debating the Pharisees the first time it's come up. Jesus brought it up. They thought, speaking of the Pharisees, that a man could divorce his wife for any reason and marry whomever else he wanted to marry. Remember what we saw about that or said about it uh, a Sunday or two ago, you know, guy get, uh, you know, displeased with his wife because he didn't like uh, the dinner that she cooked for him. He didn't like the way she cooked, so he decides to give her a divorce and send her away. They were serious about this kind of stuff. Anything that a man could conjure up and come up with uh, could become an excuse for him to get rid of his wife. And they thought that the law of Moses sanctioned this kind of behavior. But Jesus corrects them. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that remarriage is not an option for someone who divorces except in the case of adultery. Stay with me. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, uh, Jesus declares there, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Hmm. So any man who would divorce his wife except for, the, except for sexual immorality, there, that's known as the exception clause in the Bible on this issue, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, so adultery is a form of sexual immorality and therefore is sin in the sight of God. Sexual immorality is also known uh, in older translations of the Bible here as Fornication. Now that's an old word that I think many people nowadays know not of, unless you've been in the church a long time, unless you're familiar with the King James Version of the Bible, because the King James Bible uses the word, that old word, fornication. I remember, the first, I remember when I first heard that word as a young, brand new 16-year-old believer, it almost made me shiver. A little bit of fornication. Mm. I mean, it just sounded bad to me, even though I didn't. I, you know, I was new. I didn't know the Bible. <laughs> but boy, I tell you, something about that word, man, ooh, it just worried me. It was supposed to worry me. <laughs> Adultery violates the sacred covenant of marriage before God. Adultery breaks the bond and severs the sacred union between husband and wife. Adultery is spiritually and morally corrupt behavior which profanes the marriage relationship. Adultery pollutes and poisons the soul of a marriage relationship. 
Adultery does violence to the union of two souls in a marriage. Adultery is evil in the eyes of the Lord. So adultery can destroy a marriage and is the only exception which could allow for the possibility of remarriage on the part of a spouse who was cheated on. Okay? The exception clause here allows for the possibility of remarriage for the spouse who was cheated against, who was cheated on. Not the cheating spouse. Remarriage would not be permissible for the spouse who committed adultery because that would be tantamount to committing adultery on top of adultery. Think about it. Okay. Now, if you are remarried, as I, as I said at the beginning, whatever the situation, whatever happened, if you are remarried, let me hurriedly say, to those of you who are remarried, stay married and faithful to your present spouse. Okay, I, I don't care what happened and how you got where you are. You know, we can't go back and change the past. The only, back, the only, the only one who can do anything about the past is the Lord himself, okay? And Jesus has already done something about it in that he has died on the cross and borne the sins and the, and the guilt of our sins in his body on the cross. So here's the deal. From my vantage point as, as the servant of God giving you the word of God, here's the deal. Uh, let God deal, listen, repent and let God, God's grace Heal you, help you, make you whole, and get you over whatever you did in the past and however it happened and whatever went bad and wrong, whatever role you played in it. God will forgive. You did not commit the unpardonable sin. Okay? But now that you are remarried, stay married to the one you're with and be faithful to your present spouse. Because you cannot go back and undo what has been done in the past. Seek the Lord's forgiveness and be faithful to the one to whom you are presently married. Remember, um, you know, some of the statistics of recent years have, you know, said that second marriages are more difficult to maintain than first marriages in many cases. It's not always true, of course, but in many cases, that is the situation. Stay with the person you're presently married to and be faithful to that person and to your marriage. And in so doing, you're being faithful to God as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, listen, listen. Remember, we often don't make these connections unless we are taught to make these connections. Marriage is all about discipleship. Christian marriage is all about Christian discipleship. 
And that's what Jesus is making plain here. If you're going to follow him, okay, here is the truth for you to live by. In Mark chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus also applies this truth about divorce to the wife when he says, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So just as it is not an option for a husband, neither is remarriage an option for a wife who divorces her husband except for adultery. But why? Why does the Lord declare that divorce and remarriage are not an option? Why? It's a good question for us to ponder and try to walk through the answer um, at this time, brothers and sisters. Listen. So, there is something about the nature of marriage and God's design for marriage that makes remarriage impossible with the exception of adultery or, let me also add, desertion by an unbelieving spouse, because that's also in the scripture, or death of a spouse. Fornication, let me use that old word. Desertion or death. According to the teachings of the New Testament, then, adultery, desertion by an unbelieving spouse, or the death of a spouse are the only things that allow for remarriage. By the way, let me also... Let me also just add another piece of important knowledge to this. Uh, let's say, for example, you were married and divorced from your spouse, um, and you realize you're not eligible to remarry, but you're divorced from the spouse. If that divorced spouse dies, you become eligible again. If that divorced spouse dies, you become eligible again. Based upon just a comprehensive understanding of everything that the New Testament teaches about this issue. The scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 13 and verse 15 says this. To the married, I give this command. Now, if you got 1 Corinthians 7, you, you got your Bible, turn there. There's a lot in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where the apostle Paul, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is answering a series of questions that the believers at the church of Corinth had sent to him because they were wrestling and struggling with issues that they did not know how to deal with in the church. And so they sent Paul a series of questions uh, for spiritual guidance from the apostle on what to do with some of the challenges that they were encountering in the church uh, with people. And so, um, among other things, 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter in response to those questions, as well as in response to several disorders that were going on in the church. 
So here at this point, uh, in chapter 7, he deals with marriage and family and singleness, etc. To the married, I give this command, 1 Corinthians 7, 10. Parenthetically, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband must not divorce his wife. Stop right there. This is the Apostle Paul's summary of the basics of what Jesus taught about marriage as a covenant commitment between one man and one woman for life. That's what, that's what Paul means when he says parenthetically in verse 10, not I, but the Lord. I give this command, but not I, but the Lord was the one. Jesus was the one who gave this command when he taught about it when he was on the earth, is what Paul is saying. The scripture continues, verse 12. To the rest, I say this, parenthetically, I, not the Lord. In other words, Paul is using his own apostolic authority that has been given to him by the Lord, okay, to say what he's about to say to them. Any brother uh, who has a wife who is not a believer, any Christian brother who has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Even though she's not saved, he must not divorce her. Let's carry on, verse 13. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now skip to verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances because God has called us to live in peace. Hmm. Now, remember, let me just parenthetically point out, in verse 12, the Apostle Paul here says, I, not the Lord, referring to the fact that Jesus had not addressed this specific issue during his earthly ministry. So Paul dealt with the issue here in order to answer pressing questions about this issue that came from the members of the church at Corinth. Now, a Christian believer, then, who is married to a non-believer should remain married to the non-believer, especially if the non-believer wants to remain in the marriage. But if the non-believer deserts the marriage, the Christian is permitted to let the non-believer go away in divorce. Let me also explain here parenthetically, these biblical guidelines were probably referring to cases where a married couple had been unbelievers. Both of them had been unbelievers, but one of the spouses received Christ in salvation while the other did not. And the unbelieving spouse 
decides they still want to be married to the Christian, the scripture says, stay married. Uh, or in the case where the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay married to the Christian, the scripture says, okay, then let them go. God has called us to peace. By the way, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 13 and verse 15, these verses we're reading right here, probably is not referring to Christians who marry non-Christians, knowing full well that Scripture teaches against this, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, which says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, the devil? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? See, some Christians make it up in their minds for whatever reason that they're going to marry somebody who's not a believer. Uh, the scripture teaches that they should not do so, but they do anyway. Then, if things go bad in the marriage, then they want to refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and say, let the unbeliever go. <laughs> well, actually, you disobeyed God by marrying the unbeliever in the first place. You actually created this problem. You created this issue in the first place by disobeying God. If things go wrong, what did you expect to happen? What, now, God, God honors marriage. You married him though you shouldn't have. If, if, if the marriage lasts, and even eventually the non-believer is saved, God be praised, you still disobeyed. But God's grace showed mercy to you, and well, more importantly in that situation, mercy to that lost soul, 